We are not shy about sort of picking on higher education at times in terms of the speed at which they need to advance how they're teaching. By the time you get out of a four-year school or a two-year school or a program, potentially your job doesn't exist anymore or what you really hoped to do does not exist in the way that it did when you went into school. We live in a time where it is really easy to aspire to be famous. And there's a lot more than the person that's singing into the microphone on the stage or hitting the home run. There's a whole world that brings these moments to life. And if you like sports, but you can't hit a ball that fast, or you love music, but you are tone deaf, there are opportunities for you. And, you know, you should know that. This is the Work in Sports Podcast. Here's VP of Content and Engage Learning at WorkinSports.com, Brian Clapp. For longtime listeners of this show, one of our all-time greats, I would have to say, is Joan Lynch, the Chief Content Officer for Working Nation. Joan started out her career at ESPN. She was vital, a vital cog in the 30 for 30 series. She's a sports documentarian in a lot of ways and is one of the best storytellers I've ever been around. And now working for Working Nation, she's very focused on the labor workforce, on, on labor data, on what's happening out there, on helping people find opportunities. So she's been one of our all-time greats because that's what we do. We try to help people get jobs in the industry, and she's very tuned into that. Today, she's back, and she brought a friend. Melissa Panzer, who works with her at Working Nation and also has a background at ESPN and is also a producer, sports documentarian, and she's magnificent along with Joan. So today we have a conversation that launched because the team at Working Nation started a new series called How to Make Money Doing What You Love. And they started out with a sports lens and they put together these really cool videos from the perspective of NASCAR, from the perspective of Nitro Circus, from the perspective of Easton. Uh, and they're great visuals and great storytelling, but also it starts launching us into a lot of different conversations about what's happening in the sports industry right now. Automation, AI, how we can all prepare our future and look ahead and make smart choices. So this is one of the most insightful conversations we've had. We're also debuting a new segment, which I've talked about a little bit called One Great Story. I find some of the best moments on this show are these authentic stories that come out from a, a guest's experience. Something they experienced because they work in the sports industry. Something behind the scenes, something working on a project, something being invited to an event. And when they really get to tell this story, almost like they're sitting at a family reunion and sharing with everybody and having this moment where everybody's just wrapped attention, staring at them. I want to share those kind of moments. So we kick that off in this conversation. It comes near the end, so don't miss it. But Joan tells an amazing story about 30 for 30. And Melissa tells an amazing story about interviewing Michael Phelps after the Olympics. Actually, Michael Phelps' family, his sister, and, and some of the processes that went into that. So really cool behind-the-scenes stories. Stay tuned for that. But right now, let's kick it off with our friends, Joan Lynch and Melissa Panzer. This is a new event here on the podcast. I have two guests. Usually it's just a one-on-one -on -one type situation. And I have a familiar face as well. My good friend, Joan Lynch, who is joining us back again, the only three-time champion of the Work and Sports podcast, which we've been laughing about internally. It's the three, third time that Joan's been on the show. And she brought a friend this time, Hello. Melissa Panzer. This is great. I'm so excited to, to talk to you both. So Joan, just so everybody can hear your voice and know which one to associate it with, say hi to everybody. 
Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me back. Yes. Love it. Melissa, now your turn to say hi, hi to everybody. Should I talk like down here so that people know I'm me? <laughs> so they can tell. <laughs> so you know it's yeah. Melissa versus Joan. No, we got it. I think the audience can follow along. Uh, as you can probably tell, we're going to have a fun conversation today. There's some good stuff to dig into. But Melissa, I want to start with you since... A lot of longtime listeners know a little bit of Joan's background. Let's get a, just get a little bit of your background and story as well, too. Syracuse undergrad to ESPN career. This is a path that I feel like I've seen happen many times over my lifetime. I feel like I've worked with so many people who have gone that route. But you have a little bit of a different path here. You were a theater major at Syracuse, which I think is really cool. So two-part question how did that background set you up for this level of success? Because I think there are a lot of parallels there. And I love the fact that it's like a, a different path than some people may take. And secondarily, how did you go from theater to sports? How did this happen? Why, why was this love affair there? Yeah, so uh, part one, um, I think that studying theater like actually prepares you for every job it teaches you soft skills in a way that you're not required to learn in really any other undergraduate degree and i feel like i should start by being like it comes from like a major sense of privilege that i can say that i could study whatever i wanted in college and the world was a really different place when i graduated college um but i learned while i was there that i was not a good actor which is what i went to school to do and but i really liked telling people what to do. So um, I didn't know what a producer was even at the time. And I started like a little theater production company with someone I went to college with. And we produced a lot of plays, which I loved doing. Um, But really, I wanted to work in television. Or so I thought. I I thought I wanted to make movies, scripted narrative movies. And um, I moved to New York. And I actually worked for Syracuse. It was my first job out of college. I worked for the theater program because uh, I realized like, oh, I have to get a job or I'm going to be living in a cardboard box because um, I I didn't have any help. I mean, I, I, I didn't want any help. Um, at the time in New York, there was not a lot of television that was being made if you didn't want to work on the soap opera. So um, I actually didn't know anything about sports. So like nothing. So yeah. I mean, I couldn't have told you who had won the World Series like that year. Probably I couldn't have told you that the World Series was for baseball, frankly. <laughs> um, and so so I didn't, but I didn't know how to get into TV, which is what I really cared about doing. And I had a colleague, someone who is now a colleague, but the, the brother of a cousin of a friend of mine mm-hmm. um, who worked at ESPN and he went to Syracuse also. Uh, and studied film. And he said, you know, there's this job opening. I think like, if you want to get into TV, like maybe this is a way, but you have to know about sports. Like it is just part of the deal, the deal. (laughs) And actually there's like a test, which I'm sure you've talked about on this show before. I've had one. Um, so you have to be prepared for the test. And so, I mean, and this is like, the ultimate working nation story, I would say. I was like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to pass this test. Yeah. Funny enough, 
there was no test. That wasn't a thing in our department. You, it's like the only department you didn't have to do the test for because John Walsh was not in charge of like the peon hires, which is what I was. Um, <laughs> but I prepared for it. So a friend of mine who was like a sports, total sports junkie, he wrote me this like front and back one Cheat sheet of like, yeah. you know, everything that you would have to know for the last five years and like, you know, size 2.5 font that I memorized. <laughs> and I went into this interview with Jones. Well, she, she wasn't even really Jones assistant with the assistant that I would be replacing. And I was like, I'm ready for the test. And she was like, Oh, that's not, we don't have the test. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, Oh, but I put uh, all this work into it. Can I show I off for a little bit? I yeah, mean, can I tell you something? Right? <laughs> yeah. And she was like, I don't really know about sports. And actually I, I can't even remember if I had gotten home when I got the job offer. Um, but just to add a little bit to this story. So I worked for Joan. I was Joan's assistant, like almost over 15 years ago. And, um, I didn't meet her for like the first 10 days of the job because she was on this, this actually takes the whole thing to another level. She was on a job. We were doing Barry Bonds' show at the time. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know who that was. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I did (laughs) <laughs> yeah. That does kind of take it but to another level. Yeah. I'll say this though. I feel like that job, there were so many reasons that that job was like one of the greatest jobs of my life because it actually didn't matter in the department that we worked in that I didn't know the nuts and bolts about sports. Yeah. I learned to just be a way better storyteller working right. there. And I learned that Sports stories, which of course I'm sure you talk about on this show all the time, mm-hmm. sports stories are the story. I mean, the the gold in sports stories are, it doesn't matter if you like sports. Right. They are the heart and soul of storytelling. Yep. And so that it was like an amazing opportunity working. For, and I learned a tremendous amount working for Joan in a department that was just losing money. So we had to learn all about how to, how to turn it around. Yeah. I mean, it was like an incredible experience. I love that story, and I love the non-traditional path in the industry. We get a lot of people that are like, "I want to train. I want to get into the sports industry later in their life," or "I I'm I'm a I'm an accounting major, and I'd like to get into sports or whatever." So I think that's it's a valuable lesson to kind of open up that world to everybody and say, really, it's not always I do X, Y, and Z, and I end up in sports. Yeah. It's a massive business. There's tons of different opportunities. And we'll get into a lot more of this later. But it's just, I like hearing those kind of stories because I think it's it's like almost comforting for, for some people to hear and know that maybe I didn't get my, you know, perfect degree that sets me up for everything, but you can still make it work. Totally. And in fact, I would argue really quick that a more non-traditional path into sports is a better path, frankly, because the things that are non-traditional about whatever your training is will only make you more valuable if you know those sort of traditional set of skills also. Yep, yep. I laugh all the time. My wife was an art major and she's now a VP of marketing for a big company. And and one of my best friends at our current organization was a theater major and is now like our director of acquisition. I mean, there's so many different ways these skills transfer and you just have to be able to kind of almost craft that story and tell somebody why you'd be valuable and why you'd fit. And if you could do those things, it can work out. But Joan, let's backtrack for a second here. So as I've mentioned, one of my favorite all-time guests, it's awesome having you back. After your award-winning career at ESPN, you've been at Working Nation now for what, eight years? Is it about that long? 
Mm-hmm. So give everybody a little bit of an idea of what Working Nation is and how you guys keep developing this such Im- such important content that spans outside of sports as well. But I mean, you hearken back to your roots some too and do some sports related stories. I do. That's why we're here today. That's right. Yeah, so thanks for having me back. And Working Nation, um, I was brought in by our founder, Art Bilger, who's a venture capitalist and a very successful businessman who was also in media who recognized that we have a real issues with skills and jobs in this country and it's moving quickly. I mean, we'll talk about it today, but it's moving faster than we ever would have thought even eight years ago. So he brought me in based on the experience with 30 for 30 and the documentary storytelling that I had done to try to tell stories to alert people as to not just the problem, but what's out there and what are the solutions and what should people do. Um, very quickly within the first two weeks, I called Melissa and said, Hey, do you want to work on this project with me? There's this crazy guy and he's got this crazy idea. I think it might be pretty boring, but do you want to do it? And she said, no, (laughs) (laughs) she said, that sounds awful, Uh, which I had said to Art too, but, um, but we dug in for a year. He let us do the same process that we did at ESPN at 30 for 30, where we took pitches and talked to people about jobs and skills and very quickly realized that it is the most interesting topic that I've ever come across. And yes, sports plays into it. So does the environment. So does infrastructure. So everything plays into this conversation. And I I would say, you know, in, in having this conversation with Melissa and I, a perfect example is that when we started Working Nation, we didn't even have a name for a year. And we decided we were going to do all this content. And now we've done thousands of pieces of content. Yeah. A lot of people asked us, both of us, why did you leave the industry? And why did you leave? And it wasn't just why did you leave sports, but why are you going to start this not-for-profit media? And I have a journalism back from, background at ABC News before ESPN, but why? And what we're really saying at Working Nation, I'm saying about us, is we just took our skills and in development, which is really what we are. We're developers of stories and teams and, and companies and built this media entity. So it's not different. And the good news is because of the topic, we're able to come back in ways like this that we'll talk about today to touch on things that we're passionate about, which now she's passionate about, which is important. That's right. (laughs) Well, it leans into purpose so much too. And we'll talk about this later. But I think like uh, for me, as I've gotten further into my career, the idea of being on the production grind wasn't as appealing to me. Mm -hmm. And I loved it for a time being, but then I also wanted to do, there were other things I wanted to do that gave me a sense of giving back and helping others and helping lift. And and those things gave me a different sense of purpose as I got further into my career. And I mean, you guys are doing incredible work that's making a huge difference. And I think that Mm -hmm. that probably has to feel has to feel something internally, right? Yeah. 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 It's it's interesting because we were just in Atlanta the last few days. And we were meeting with a PBS station there and the woman said to us, wow, what you're doing, this is the most interesting stuff. It feels like advocacy. Mm-hmm. And our and our editor-in-chief who worked with me at ABC News has said that about the journalism that we do in the story. It's really interesting to be in a space where we're telling a story, where we're advocating for um, the worker and for the family and for your future. Yeah. And we're giving people solutions while also never deviating from we tell human stories that are designed to have an impact and get people inspired. So there is an advocacy side of it that I never thought I would necessarily be in, but it's interesting. And and yes, purpose is something very important to our founder, to art, and very important to us. And then there is that balance, the natural balance of when you're choosing a career and you're choosing a field to go into, 
that you have to be very careful about going after what you would say is your passion. You have to be smart about, okay, what is my passion? How do I find my purpose? But how am I smart about whether or not this job exists and will exist a year from now or 10 years from now? Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, So many great points in there too. And I like the solutions thinking, you know, like that you're working towards solutions, not just creating content, but actually giving people solutions and actionable pieces of advice. So I think the the most recent project you guys have worked on is why a lot of reason why we're here today, not just because we're all friends and we like to chat, but <laughs> um, the most recent project I think is brilliant, how to make money doing what you love. It's three parts so far that I've seen that mm-hmm. uh, delve into the sports industry. We say that a lot around here, you know, making your passion, your career, aligning those things. Why shouldn't you love what you do? You know, those are the kind of things we emphasize a lot to young people listening, anybody who's in, interested in, in their really figuring out their career path. But what led you guys this series idea? What made you feel like this was a special story worth telling? Sure. I'll I'll let Melissa talk a little more about how it ended up playing out. But one really interesting thing happened very early on. We were shooting one of our first pieces of content in D.C., a roundtable, and with, with all of these thought leaders, and David Schuster was moderating it. And actually, we had friends and family come into the room. And one of the people that came in was my stepson, who at the time was about... 11, 10 or 11. And he had no interest in sports when I was at ESPN. None. Zero. <laughs> like, I mean, I have him with Jerry Rice and Trent Dilfer and all these people. Yeah. Couldn't care less. Right. Meant now, yeah. at this point, eight, eight, seven years ago, he's a huge sports fan, but mostly a huge fantasy sports fan. And okay. so he's talking about to our team just before we shot what he was into. And he said, oh, I love fantasy. And he starts talking about the data and he starts talking about this person's record and numbers and all of these things and, and stats. And then somebody asked him, what's your favorite? David Schuster. David Schuster asked him, what's your favorite subject in school? And he said, oh, you know, English, whatever. He's like, I hate math. And David Schuster said, you know, if you're really into fantasy and you're into all these stats, that is math. And Mm -hmm. his answer was, oh, maybe math is my favorite subject. Mm-hmm. And since that time, he has leaned into the fact that he actually didn't know that he loved math, but he does that is his hobby. And so Melissa was the one that said to me afterwards, I think there's something here about introducing and flipping things on its head. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so the world of sports being one that we're very connected to, we thought, well, why don't we try this series here first and see what we've got? So it, it, that's what, what started it. And then Melissa started to develop it out. I also want to add something to that, which is that, you know, I think we live in a time where it is really easy to aspire to be famous. Mm. And um, there's a lot more than the person that's singing into the microphone on the stage or hitting the home run or whatever, or flying the truck off the ramp uh, or the minibus in this case. And, <laughs> which is awesome. <laughs> it is so cool. Um, and And actually going back to ESPN, I think, we, Joan and I worked on the New Year's Eve special year over year there. That was like, we developed that, that extreme sport event. And I learned while, while we were working there, and I think you did too, but I, I can't say for certain, but how complex it is to do those ex- real extreme stunts. And the math that goes into it and the building mm-hmm. and like the dirt guy's focus and all of the pieces of the puzzle and 
Robbie Madison in the case of, you know, the New Year's Eve specials that we did, oftentimes he was doing this stunt, was the face of the stunt. But like without the 500 people behind him, there's no stunt. And um, and I think it's really easy to focus on that person. And this working nation really gave us an opportunity to say like, hey, Taylor Swift is maybe like leading the show here, but without her like lighting guy and, you know, the her tour manager, whatever else, like yeah. the whole, the, there's a whole world that brings these moments to life. And you, mm-hmm. if you like sports, but you can't hit a ball that fast, or you love music, but you are tone deaf, there are opportunities for you. And, you know, you should know that. Yeah. No, I, I think that's the absolute right perspective in our industry. And oh, so let me ask from a from a creative standpoint, the three of us have always been here. We've been here before where you start out with an idea, you have a plan, you have a concept, and then you start shooting and something happens that makes you say, okay, we're onto something here. Like this is starting to really feel like it's coming together. Melissa, did you have moments like that during the process where it started to feel like, all right, this is coming together. I'm feeling this. This is, this is something. Yes. But honestly, I think it happened before we started filming. Okay. Honestly, in this scenario, I mean, it's a no-brainer that like on Monday, the episode that just came out is is about Easton Sports and this bat that, you know, they created and the passion that that the the folks that worked in the R&D like to create that bat. I mean, it seems like such a silly thing to be like, "Oh, that moment." You're like, "Oh, whoa." But it really was like there was a million of those moments yeah. where it was like, and and you know, not everybody went to college in this piece and in these pieces and understanding like life skills and all the things. So I, I feel like it was sort of like a culmination of all of the things that we already knew at working at working nation, and then also all the things we already knew from ESPN. It was like. Yeah, obviously it's going to work. Not yeah. to toot our own horn here, but it really was a little bit like that. No, but I I, I totally get it. And I, sometimes it just like it validates it once you start shooting and you start to mm-hmm. hear the right right kind of people are getting it. Yeah. They're, they're saying the right things. All, and you start yeah. to visualize the whole picture come together. I mean, I yeah. still love that feeling. So I, I, yeah. I still embody that. Uh, Joan, bigger picture. We mm-hmm. all started in the sports industry a while ago. I won't date us too much, but we all started <laughs> in the sports industry a while ago. Um, how much from your perspective have things changed and how would you articulate that change? Because to me, it feels like mentalities have changed a lot or the perspective of organizations have changed a lot. But coupling that with a lot of the knowledge you have from Working Nation and seeing other industries, where are you seeing the change in the workforce and is specifically in the sports industry? Yeah, as I, as I said, I never would have expected eight years ago that it would be moving as fast as it is. Um, and COVID definitely exacerbated that yeah. in some ways too, um, as I think you and I have talked about before. But what's interesting to me is I think the first time I met you was maybe three years ago. Mm-hmm. And at that point, if we really consider that there were people, I always say kids, but people going into college or going to community college or going to these programs that were hoping to go into sports, what they didn't know and what these people I think still don't know is by the time you get out of a four-year school or a two-year school or a program, it has already advanced in a way that potentially your job doesn't exist anymore or what you really hoped to do does not exist in the way that it did when you went into school. And, you know, we we are not shy about sort of picking on higher education at times in terms of how the speed at which they need to advance how they're teaching. 
Um, the, the jobs that you and I talked about two or three years ago with the advancement of AI, with the advancement of these um, chat bots or whatever, yeah. they, there are jobs that don't exist. You know, who would have thought that you'd have AI referees? I mean, I, there's it's certain crazy. things that I would have said to you three years ago, oh, we're pretty safe on this for a while. Yep. And now we're not. So I think it has changed. It's, um, I think anyone going into this world in sports or any field has to be looking at what do I need to know? Technology, data, you have to know it no matter what that job is. It's so interesting you bring that up because it's something we've talked about a lot is, you know, uh, five years ago when people would talk about automation or matter of fact, I think you and I had talks about automation a couple of years ago, you start to think of like, okay, that's robots on a conveyor line or whatever, and that that's replaceable. And, and that's not, that's that right. doesn't bother, that doesn't affect me. Well, mm-hmm. now we're seeing journalism being done on AI. That's and it's right. like, some of us are sitting back and be like, wait, no, no, I'm not, I don't feel good about that, you know? So that, yeah. that perspective of a college student to think about what does 10 years look like from mm-hmm. now yeah. is really important and challenging. It's really important. I mean, they're, they're in Hollywood, they're talking about this writers, potential writer strike. And, you know, there's stuff in the, in the media this week about AI at writing scripts for shows and writing yes. scripts for movies. I mean... I, I, I never, myself, I wouldn't have thought about that a, a few years ago. So when, when we are in the world of sports, you know, it used to be, okay, well, these robots are going to exist or these cameras over the field yeah. are going to change things. So we don't need as many people. We need people to, to actually do the, you know, control of them. That's not even true anymore. But it is true that you're going to need people to design these machines and to, you know, work and, and incorporate them into a broadcast system. There's a tech side of it that's very yep. exciting and cool, um, but it is, it's radically changing and, and very, very fast. And we should all be aware of that. Yeah, for sure. And it feels like post-pandemic, I think, you know, those the, there's just so many different things that were elevated as far as the production quality or fan engagement and all these different just layers to, hey, wait, we survived through this type of period. Mm-hmm. What did we learn and how can we, you know, apply that moving forward? It just, it this, 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 the equation's always kind of changing. So you have to stay right. really on top of it. To that point, Melissa, when I broke mm-hmm. in, you know, the early attitude from my bosses was, yeah, if you're not happy with your salary, if you're not happy with your schedule, if you're not happy with all these things, I can replace you tomorrow. There's like a hundred people waiting to do your job and they'll mm-hmm. probably do it just as well, if not better. But a lot of us stuck it out because there was this hope of this will pencil in the future. I love what I'm doing. I'm happy. But I feel like post pandemic, there's a lot of people questioning purpose. There's a lot of people saying, I don't want to work 60, 70 hours a week for this college athletic program, doing the job of four people and getting paid nothing. Mm -hmm. And there's people that are jumping from the industry and there is a bit of an existential threat and there is a bit of a brain drain going on. Mm -hmm. Is this something that the industry as a whole, I mean, you guys tapped into the passion of it and the the videos you guys created are showing people that are happy and loving their job Mm -hmm. and all these different angles. But there is a little bit of a dark side going on right now too, where people are saying, is this is this enjoyment enough to fulfill me as a financial person, as a, everything mm-hmm. else in my life? Is that a big threat? Yes, I think so. I mean, yeah. but I don't think it's just sports. I think that's a threat of every industry today. I mean, I think there's complexity to it too, because you know, I'm I will air my dirty laundry. I'm 39, and um, I fall sort of in this age gap that 
uh, folks that are older than me exclusively have had the kind of experience that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Folks that are younger than me are who are saying like, nah, I'm not, I'm not into that. Work is yeah. over at five. And so I have to, pe- my friends and I are sort of finding ourselves writing this line of like, what's acceptable? Like, how do you manage both sides of that coin? And I think that there is a threat. I mean, I think that we see it in, in like I said, in all industries. I mean, people, it's why there's a teacher shortage. It's why there's a nursing shortage. I mean, people are saying like, I'm done. Like, I, there's too much money out there. Why is it not coming to me? I want to be able to go home and like watch the game from my television set, mm. not be worried about everything falling apart at work. You know, mm. I have a kid. I want that kid. I want to spend time with my kid. Yep. I have a dog, you know, whatever it is. And I, I think there is a, a come to Jesus moment that we are on the precipice of that if it sort of doesn't get fixed, um, more people need to be hired, more people with the right skills. What are those right skills? How do we sort of diversify? Yeah. Uh, I think that's a real threat. But but again, I don't think it's just in sports. I think it is across the board. And I, I would add, I, we talked about this, Brian, I think the last time I, I talked to you, but with COVID and with a lot of people transitioning to work at home and the technology shifts that have happened certainly in sports, you know, now people, as you, you saw in the NASCAR episode of our series, you see them sitting in a control room, but there's plenty of folks. We were, when we were at this PBS station in Atlanta last week, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, master technology folks and, and all of the producers, they're, they're operating all of this from home yeah. and yeah. their switchers are at home. And so there are opportunities that have made themselves available as technology has changed. Um, you also have to be a self-starter and you have to be able to do that at home and, and a lot of those. So as much as there's generational stuff that you're talking about, about people walking away from the workforce, there's also a lot of opportunities, I think, for not for anybody in any field. And definitely in some cases, we're doing a huge project on working moms, but women that are you know, at home and want to be working, but don't want to be on the road. I had plenty right. of those at ESPN. I had yes. VPs that worked for me. And they just did not want to be working on Monday Night Football, where at the time, everyone flew to the game and everybody worked the game. And then you came home and had a couple of days with your kids and then you went back to the next. And it was Monday night. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's Monday night. So so it's it's a really exciting and dynamic time in terms of jobs and definitely in sports if you pay attention. That's what we always say. Do it with intent. Do educated. Make educated decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I, can I just say one other thing, which sort of ties to the question you just asked Joan and this question you just asked me together, which is um, someone recently said to me, I have a four and a half year old. And someone said to me, we were talking about this industry and I said, he's, he's not doing this job. Like there's just, it's just not happening. If it, in 10 years, it might be totally different and it might be much more structured and the way you get to it might be different and all the things, but today it is not. And it is, um, you can be out of a job in five seconds. And I don't like that. So this person said to me, so like, what do you want him to do? And I was like, you know, I don't know. And I don't care, but he needs to learn about data. I think that that is uh, like a quintessential part. I think sports fans actually are a major advantage because to Joan's earlier point about Griffin, they like data naturally. It's just like part of knowing about sports. But I think there is real value in prioritizing understanding that data will drive so much decision-making in the future. And we have such quick access to data today. And chat GPT is like a really good example of that, that um, 
understanding how data works and how to manipulate data, I think is a skill you are need you will need for whatever job you have in 10 years. Vital. Uh, I've always thought, you know, in the, I feel like in the last 10 years, maybe not just like Moneyball kind of player side analytics, but it feels like the sports industry industry has become more data-driven in the last 10 years, whereas other industries I think are ahead on that as far as like business data-driven. And now everything is so focused on understanding that side of the data. And I've talked with people in talent acquisition that have been like, the number one thing we're trying to hire for is business analysts. Like we need to get people that can analyze the data and understand how to improve or de- like improve revenue growth, decrease spending, dynamic ticket pricing. So it's got the label of sports on it, but really it's it's business, it's data. Totally. Yeah, and I think that the sports industry, and Joan, I'll ask this to you, um, the sports industry is really unique in a way in that it is one massive business. So there are business type jobs, marketing, sales, et cetera. There's sports-specific jobs like coaching and training and being a scout. You don't see those at Microsoft, let's say. Right. And then there's also jobs that are like in one of in your in your Nitro Circus uh, story that you guys produced. There's jobs in the logistics and engineering. Like there's all right. kinds of different types. We've talked for a long time that I feel like the sports industry is a, a meritocracy in a lot of ways. If you can bring value to an organization, you will have an opportunity in sports. You can put it into that envelope of sports. Do you see that? Does you see that anywhere else, like where there's this many different types of opportunities, or is the sports industry kind of unique in that there's almost a line you can draw back to it and find an opportunity in almost any way, shape, or form? Yeah, I think um, I think the sports industry is really unique. I think you're right. There's just so many elements to it, from the building of these structures and the data that goes into where do we put the screens in a, in stadiums? Where do we put the screens? What? How big are they? Like these are all things that are like very strate- strategically decided yeah. by people. So um, and and you know an example that I was talking about to somebody else this morning is Live Golf, right? So we have we have a, and I happen to be a huge golf fan, as you know. I was going to ask how this, your golf game was, but go ahead. <laughs> right, I'm a huge golf fan, and but you know you look at okay now you've got the, some of the best players in the world, if not the best players in the world. You throw a ton of money at them, um, and you can you have these courses, and you can have some creative people come up with a new format for for, you know, these tournaments. However, what becomes the most important in that particular area, all of a sudden it becomes PR because it's a PR nightmare from the beginning in terms of the ownership of, of live. So, so you couldn't even really talk about what the opportunity was. It was how much money is going to these players, who owns it, what golf courses are going to let these players play on it. Should they be allowed to play in the masters? I mean, that's a straight marketing PR. Yeah issue. So the people that are the most important at that moment are those people. And on the other side of it, I mean, they have the CW deal now, but the other side was who is going to give us a broadcasting deal? Because really nice to have great golfers, but if nobody sees it, what does it matter? Mm -hmm. And, and they're starting, and you know, we know Dennis Miller, he's been involved with Working Nation. He's heading up the CW. You know, I think it's bold that he made this choice to bring Live Golf in. It's a great opportunity for him. Yeah. But that I use that as an example of the most important elements or people within that sport or that league right now are not the people that you think they would be. Yeah. And and they had great production and Will Stager and all of those guys. So they have beautiful stuff and great game, but people weren't seeing it yeah. and people were angry yeah. about 
you know, the PR side of it and 9-11 and Saudi Arabia and all of these things mm-hmm. that just needed to get explained. So I do think that, you know, it's a long winded way to say, I do think that the sports industry is so unique in that way that mm-hmm. you, you know, the stars in certain times end up being the people that are not, as Melissa said, hitting the fastball yeah. or, you know, or winning a, winning a golf tournament. Side note, uh, full swing on Netflix. Did you love it? Oh, so good. So good. <laughs> I know, right? So good. I was so jealous watching it. I'm like, oh gosh, I want to, I want to do that. Like, I just want to, <laughs> like any, you don't have to be a golf fan. Like my wife would watch it with me and be like, this is just great, compelling television. Yeah. Well, that's like the F1 series. I mean, it's yeah, so good. I mean, made F1 so popular. Yeah. I mean, Art would be so mad if I said this on lap, but I'll say it. Like everybody said, like, what's your dream job? I'm like, oh, working for the PGA. Doing what? I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> but it's, yeah. Oh, I thought it was, I, it was well produced. And back to what Melissa said earlier and what we do now it's just great storytelling. It is. And it gets people, you know, we did this at working at um at uh ESPN with poker. Yeah. And they did it with F1 and they're doing it with golf. Um, I think poker was kind of unique in that way. Like whoever thought they yeah. this would be an interesting thing to watch. And yet Melissa and I just had a conversation the other night about the year that we decided to take the final table table of World Series of Poker live. Yeah. And the producers of that and the team that worked for me that was like, yeah, I think we should really try this. Like, what? Watching yeah, the right? poker is awful. Yeah. So unless you're playing it, you shouldn't be sitting there watching it. So there's it, it's yeah, it's just an interesting space to be in. Gosh, I love all the documentary style. And I and hard knocks kicked it off in a lot of ways in 30 for 30, mm-hmm. which you're so familiar with. But these are, these are just, it's just great. It's just compelling television and it's yeah. artistry and I, I adore it. So anyway, we'll, we'll move along. Melissa, I think one of the most relatable stories you guys told as part of this series was Ricky Melnick from Nitro yeah. Circus. Mm-hmm. Um, just like you had a non-traditional pathway into the sports industry, I thought his story was one I just was eating up. Tell everybody out there listening, I know everybody listening is going to go watch the Nitro Circus clip, but they haven't yet. Give a little bit of background into that story and why that's such an inspirational tale to share that it's not always this traditional path that people need to follow to find success. Well, I mean, I think, yes, go watch his story, one. (laughs) Two, you know, I think the thing about it is that uh, there are parameters that like, you know, get put in place that sort of say like, you need to follow these steps to get to this, whatever the place is in his case. I mean, you know, there's only one of him, right? Like that's doing that job. And I feel like the takeaway really is like, what do you love and what are you good at? And how do those things, and is there an opportunity for real growth to come out of those two things and real opportunity for you to pursue a career path. And it was funny to me, even in reading your, what you sent over to us, because I remember what feels like ages ago at this point, but talking to the producer who was on this project saying like, you've got to get into the training part. Like we got to understand, like, how did he get here though? Like it matters, it matters, but it's not traditional. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it's not traditional. And frankly, the fact that it's a non-traditional path matters more yes. because it's inspiring and it gives people insight. Like I can do it too. I love filling the blank, working with my hands, building ramps, talking to people, whatever the thing is that you love to do and how that sort of like can funnel 
Hmm. It's really just, it's like a jigsaw puzzle in some ways, I feel like, and and certainly in his case, Hmm. and sort of taking the pieces and saying like, this part, I like this part, I'm good at this part, like, how do they go together? And then finding the kinds of opportunities that are out there that you can succeed at. And just for background for everybody listening, Ricky was a, is the director of brand and athlete relationships for Nitro Circus. And yet he started out his career working in the warehouse at Mm -hmm. at snowboarding shops, if I get that correctly. Mm -hmm. And he built his way up through passion and love and real desire to improve and grow. And his his story and his his ability to really convey that energy, I found infectious and really enjoyed that. And and I think in his scenario too, you you cannot lose sight of just his personality. Because I feel like, you know, when you're thinking about what those pieces of the puzzle are, like, what are you good at? How do you, how will you thrive? Ricky is not sitting there saying, I'm, you know, I don't know, maybe he did, but I, I don't think he's sitting there being like, I'm really also like great at talking to people. And, you know, like, but he is, and he's a great storyteller and he's good at communicating and eye contact and the soft skills. And I feel like even in a warehouse, I'm sure he was great at that. And it's Mm. like, you know, you see those things in him and you're like, oh, well, obviously you should be doing this. You should, it makes sense that this is your path. Can I just say everybody's attracted to energy and enthusiasm and positivity and kindness. And I think that gets lost sometimes by people in an interview process is they think I have to be perfect and I have to be buttoned up. I have to answer every question like I read in an ebook. And it's like, no, you got to be your best excited, energetic version of yourself. And then other people want to be around you. It is, it is like, keep it simple. Sometimes I just think energy matters. Am I crazy here? You guys are nodding, which makes me feel better, but I don't know. No, you're not. And even when we've talked to the folks at LinkedIn, they tell us the best stories that work on LinkedIn are the stories about people's failures and coming back from them. And one of the fun things about Ricky and about what we do and what you do about development and the creation of things is that not everything is going to work and that some of the best ideas are going to come from a bad idea or like a eh idea. And a lot of it is about who you surround yourself with, who you build as a team and and getting people that are willing to say, maybe that's not going to work, but hey, let's try this. And I think we need to be really the most successful people going forward are going to be the people that are still willing to say, okay, I'm going to try this and it might not work, but something else is going to come of this. And to Melissa's point, I'm going to make the most of this opportunity working in a warehouse right now. And I'm going to know this warehouse in a way Mm -hmm. that when I do this next thing, it's just going to be natural, whatever I develop, where I know that process. Um, So uh, it's... It is a special skill set to be able to say, okay, I'm going to try something new. I'm going to mess up. These athletes in a lot of cases are are good at this because they have, they've lost or they've had crashes or they've had these things that they've had to come back with. And we're used to that. In a lot of industries, we're not as used to watching people crash and burn and admit it. So, you know, we have lots of opportunities. I'm sure we all have stories of people we've watched and we're like, why can't you just admit that that didn't work or you made a mistake? And they just can't because they're so terrified that people won't trust them going forward. So sports is very unique in that space. Melissa, this is why Joan's a three-time champion. She is, she, you are nailed. I love this. I mean, you're so great at this. And I think there's such great advice there. And, and like, there's just so much we can pull out of that. I was talking with somebody recently and saying, I think it's part of the, I was talking to a college class, actually. I think it ends up being part of like our human condition where 
we guard ourselves against failure. Mm. And instead of giving 100%, and then if you fail, you know it's you weren't good enough, you give 75%. And then when you fail, you say, well, it's because I didn't give it my all. It's like you protect right. yourself rather than really putting yourself out there. And I, I watch somebody like Ricky and I'm like, that's a dude that puts himself out there and is willing to, to accept failure and willing yeah. to grow from it and willing to challenge himself. And I don't know. I think sometimes we got to let loose a little bit more. I agree. Yeah, I just have to say that we, so, a, a thing that I cannot stand, Joan knows this like through and through, but Joan might have actually told me this a hundred years ago, but maybe it was like one hundred years. Yeah, well, I mean, let's be nice here. You know, <laughs> well, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's close enough. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, but that you know, you can make a mistake once, but making it again is when it becomes a problem. And I think that's like the number one piece of yeah. advice that I like to give to young people because it's like. I don't care if you screwed up. I don't care if you're a young person and screwed up. You could be, you could literally be a hundred and make this mistake. I don't care if you own the mistake, apologize that you made it and move on so that when you make the 2.0 version of that mistake, it's like, you know, a tiny bit different. Fine. Then, then let's tackle what happened that time. But I, I think there is a problem with mostly with young people today um, that I experience where it is just, totally a lack of ownership in the mistake. And if you own the mistake, you will just grow. Like yes. we only learn from the mistakes that happen. And that's right. Um, and actually, you know, I was mentioning this earlier, but when I worked for Joan at ESPN, we were a department full of mistakes in the early days and we were in the red and she walked it. Joan walked into an apartment that was falling apart and losing money every minute of its existence and I feel like because of that, I learned so much in how to grow because there was just so much failure. And I think it's made me better at my job and the folks who work for me that that immediately take ownership of their mistakes. It's made them better producers. Yep. yep. Mm. Love that. I think it's amazing advice. Totally agree. Plus 1,000 on all of it. <laughs> uh, Joan, from a business perspective, you guys are creating amazing content, mm -hmm. but it's it's one thing to make something you're proud of. It's another thing to get people to see it, and to love it, and to share it, and it gets the views that you wanted to, and it gets the the opportunity. You know, it reaches the people you wanted to reach. Other than coming on this award winning podcast, how do you go about making sure your stuff gets seen and the right people are seeing it and it's making the right impact? Well, I mean, the most important is coming on this award-winning I mean, podcast. Moment right now, clearly. of course. I mean, um, <laughs> no, it's a great question, and it is sort of the unique model of Working Nation, which at the beginning we created this, and I didn't know if it was going to work, but it has so far. And that is that we strike up these partnerships with different um, folks. So, from releasing a film with CNN Money to releasing Time Inc. and Fortune released a four-part documentary series for us. We have different distribution partners for different pieces of, of um, content. For this particular one, you know, in a lot of ways we've operated as this was, this series was funded by the uh, by Lumina Foundation out of Indianapolis and they gave us the, the freedom to do it really as a pilot to see if we wanted to do this in music, in gaming, mm. in, 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 in betting, in whatever it is, in any field, yeah. will this work? So we built this property really as a pilot series. Um, our goal is that it does continue and the attraction that we've gotten so far has, has indicated that it will and that it should, that it's inspiring for people and they need to see what the opportunities are. 
But we, yeah, we do. We we put it out ourselves. We put out digital magazines, but we generally our, our success comes from when our partners get behind it um, and share the content or, you know, in the case of like our veterans content, which is every November, you know, for, for certain shows like Hiring America are now talking to the Armed Forces Network, uh, to CBS Sunday Morning, um, Eye on Vets. Those different people taking our stories and sharing them is the way that, that Working Nation gets out there. And that's unique because we don't want to be our own channel. Yeah. We want the right content for the right audience because talking about cyber is different than talking about sports, is different yep. than talking about healthcare. Um, they're all about skills, but it's a different audience. We want to make sure our content gets the right people. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. I'm so excited about this video series. Uh, th so the, the best place for people to see it, is it your YouTube channel? Is it going to workingnation.com? Give everybody a little bit of advice on where they can go ingest all of this great content. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, if they go to our website, that's probably the, our video website is the best place to see it. We do have a very, um, robust YouTube channel as well, okay. but, uh, for now, um, and you'll find it on LinkedIn and you'll find it on our other partner sites. Yeah. All right. We're going to finish up with something. It's a little bit of a new segment that we're doing. I th I'm so thankful for your time, but um, you two are two of the best storytellers that I know. Uh, and I find that when we are on this show and somebody organically goes into them, some story that is extremely unique to their experience working in the sports industry, whether it's, you know, sitting in a press box and having a ball bounce off their hands and having 10,000 or 30,000 people boo at them or some behind the scenes thing or some moment where they met somebody that they didn't expect to meet. I think those stories are amazing. So I'm going to challenge you both uh, mm -hmm. to Joan. We'll start with you. Pressure's on uh, okay. to, to share one of those memorable moments from your career, the type of story that you'd sit around at a family reunion and share and everybody would just be like staring at you. So what, <laughs> what is that story that jumps out to you from your past experiences in the sports industry that is Ooh. just one of those great stories? Yeah. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I have a lot of those. Stories. I know you do. That's why I'm starting no, with you. I, so I'm like, can have time to think. Yeah, Melissa <laughs> mentioned uh, Barry Bonds earlier, but that would have to be over a beer and probably not on camera. But uh, those are some stories that my family. I look loves. forward to that. Yeah, we'll do that separately. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the things when we talk about storytelling and trying something new, um, and trying something new, which is an important part of jobs and skills and what Working Nation talks about, is that. There's this revisionist history about storytelling when it comes to documentaries and sports um, outside of HBO. You, you know, ESPN didn't do documentaries. And so for our department to step into that was really unique. And we did something with Dan Clorides called Black Magic, and it was very successful. And we won a Peabody. But other than that, there wasn't any interest. And anybody that tells you that, like, the, the higher ups were like, yes, let's do documentaries is lying. So, you know, so one of the things that um, happened initially, and Melissa can attest to this, is that I got a pitch from Kelly Ripa and Mark Consuelos for a wrestling mm. documentary called The Streak in Brandon, Florida, about the longest winning streak in the history of, of high school sports that have been over 34 years. And um, I took it in and, you know, I had my own budget that uh, was pretty sizable to make content, but yeah. certainly wasn't going to make a rest, high school wrestling documentary without checking. And I didn't, I knew that programming would not necessarily get behind it. And the answer was flat out. No, we're not interested in the streak. No, go on to the next thing. But every week I would have a meeting and I would yeah. go in and I would say on my list, the streak. And I kept hearing from programming and, and our 
leader at the time, no, the answer is no, move on to the next thing. And it just, yeah. I just kept coming back and coming back. And then finally, this is my favorite part of the story. The head of ESPN said to me, how much is it going to cost me to never hear about the streak again? <laughs> and I said, the number. And he said, fine, just do it. And my answer was, Oh, thank God, because I started shooting two weeks ago. <laughs> and it was John Hawk was the director and John Dahl, who's brilliant. Yeah. And you know what happened worked, is that Tribeca Film Festival, it premiered. I got a pat on the shoulder. You were right. We were sitting in the third row, nominated for a sports Emmy for it. We were robbed because it was the best sports documentary that year. But ESPN never got those awards. So yeah. um but my my point is I love that story because it was like I was absolutely sure in my gut that this was going to be successful and that and other people were looking at it and saying this is not. That was a precursor. Whether or not like 30 for 30 was a great idea and we built that and it was amazing and I'm so proud of it. But there was about five of those that came before 30 for 30 that led the way in terms of we can do this. We can our department can do it. ESPN's audience will receive it. And those are just, they've disappeared. But I love that story because it was like, I just it's went for it. I was like, what are they going to do? Fire me? Like, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I love that you started shooting two weeks before approval. And then, well, they and were, then you're they like, were, oh, good. Sports. They were going into like their their August training if yeah. I missed. Like, gotta, this is the moment. I got to do it or, I'm, this, or I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, fun. Love that. Melissa, yeah. that's a that's a that's not an easy act to follow. No but I feel confident in my response. <laughs> oh, all right. Let's bring it. I love this. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was really young when I worked at ESPN. And um, like I said much earlier in this conversation, I my goal in my life was to make like tiny budget, feature length, small story movies. That's sort of like what I thought I was going to do. And working at ESPN, I thought was really just a step in that process. But in the department we were working in, I had a lot of opportunities to interview people. And I was a baby at learning how to interview. And and um, we worked on this show. Rick Riley had an interview show uh, called Homecoming that we produced. And one of the early episodes of that was about Michael Phelps. And it was actually the first interview that Michael did after he was first caught with pot. Yeah. Um, and so it was a big deal for him to be like going back on camera. And part of that show was interviewing. We did these like little pieces with pe loved ones, friends and family that would like be the bumpers. And I did a lot of those interviews. And again, this was still really early in my career. And I interviewed his sister and she started crying during the interview. And at the end of the interview, she said to me, this is the best interview um, I've ever done and uh you're a really good interviewer and she's like you really listen and to me that was like extremely meaningful and so meaningful in actually the longevity of my career because I didn't go on to make small budget indie feature films I went on to interview thousands of people in my life and it is my whole job and that moment of being told, like, you really listened, you made me feel safe and comfortable, um, made me be a better interviewer. And, you know, I, I look back on it actually as like a really important step in my journey to becoming a documentary filmmaker. 
And that's really unique because as we're talking about, she's not talking about the interview with Michael Phelps. No. She's talking no. about the interview with somebody that nobody knows. Yeah. Um, and that could be what ends up building your confidence or your career. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You guys are great at this. this those are two <laughs> great stories. This whole conversation has been awesome. I cannot thank you enough. I will make sure that we share this to, through all of our channels for the program that you guys have created. I think the, the content you're developing is brilliant. I so enjoyed all three of the pieces that I've seen so far. And I know everybody in our audience will watch them as well and continue to tune into all the stuff that you create. So thank you, Joan. And thank you, Melissa, for coming on and chatting more about it. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian. It's always good to see you. You can see why Joan is one of my all-time favorites. Her insight is so strong and she just sees the future so well and is able to articulate the challenges that we face in our industry. And I'm so excited about one great story. I love that stuff. I want people to be able to just let it out. Let those stories come out, those moments that are so special in our industry. Melissa, great addition to the conversation. Another great piece of insight that she was bringing. I do love non-traditional paths of the sports industry because not everybody's going to follow that exact path and step of I went and got my sports management degree, did these four internships, I got hired by a minor league team. Like that's a great way to build. And that is maybe 80% of how people are going to do this. But there's always that 20% that's so interesting of the the art majors and the theater majors and people that went down a different path and then transferred in the sports industry. It's just good for all of you to hear and to know that the possibility is there for you. There's a hundred different ways to get into our industry and be successful. And Melissa bringing those to light today was really beneficial. Thanks for listening, everybody. Always makes me so excited to have you here and to keep growing this audience. So if you can continue to rate, review, and subscribe, it makes a difference. It really does. Thanks for listening. I'll see you on Monday. <laughs>